Hey there, and welcome back to Radio Meteor, the podcast where I watch an episode of 90s anime Gundam Wing and ramble about it because this fandom likes to be nerdy. This week, we emote on a boat, go deep into the question, what is justice anyway, and I enjoy saying the word bunt a lot. I'm Odomaki, aka Lemon Trash. Welcome to Orbit. Hello! Yes, I'm back. Uh, sorry it's been a while. Uh, sometimes we hit turbulence out here in orbit, you know, and I got sucked into the perimeter of a black hole for a hot minute and then time gets all wibbly wobbly and for me it's like a day and for you it's like <clears throat> three weeks. So apologies to all 12 of my listeners. Um, we're back. Not quite on schedule, but we're back. And speaking of even dozens, it's episode 12. This episode's title is Bewildered Warriors, or as they say in Japan, Mayoeru Senjitachi. And the title card is read by, drumroll please, Duo. My gosh, guys, there is just about everything to discuss in this episode. So get comfortable, um, because we're going to make some deep dives today. And uh, right off the bat, we have quite an interesting language point. So the word Mayoeru uh, here in the title is... A really layered bit of vocabulary. The root character itself, mayo, is found in the verb, confusingly, mayo, meaning to get lost. So if you wanted to talk about being physically lost, you would need to use this verb in combination with the word michi, which means road. So michi ni mayotte shimatta means I lost my way. And michi ni miyotta kodomo would mean a lost child. By itself, Mayo is more about one's mental state, and it means to wander or to waver or to dither. And it's like when you go back and forth with your thoughts. And that's very close to bewildered, but it's not quite the same. Uh, it's about being unable to decide or, or questioning and not knowing the answer. When we use this word with another word, ki, we get the phrase ki no mayo, which is a trick of one's senses or like a delusion. And mayoya sameru is to, like, to wake up from your delusion. Now, at face value, mayo and mayoeru are the same verb in just different forms. The first is the dictionary or the basic form, and the second is what's called the potential form. And that's, like, the same as can in English. So, for example, miru, to see, becomes mieru, it's like, can be seen or is visible or I can see. And as you can tell, it's a little flexible on meaning, both being passive active and a wholly new word depending on the context and the verb in question. But in any case, the title is not using the past tense of the verb mayor, and in this way it's playing on something less obvious and perhaps a little bit more literary. So the phrase most commonly associated with this verb, mayoeru, is mayoeru hitsuji, a lost sheep. This has a religious overtone. It's not talking about a literal lost sheep, as that would be mayoi hitsuji, without the added inflection. It is the lost sheep as in one's connection to a moral or spiritual path. This is also the inflection in mayoi no sakai, which is a concept in Buddhism of being in a state of spiritual darkness. The other use of mayoi is in the phrase samayoi, uh, which is an incredibly strange-looking mix of hiragana and kanji. It's not at all typical. And that means to wander. 
not wander with an O, but wander with an A, i.e. to walk aimlessly. So it's quite literary as a result, and it's also used in that eru form, samayeru, to describe、uh, things like the Flying Dutchman and the Legend of the Wandering Jew in Japanese. These are both spirits who are condemned to roam the earth. So there we go, it's, it's one hell of a title for this episode, Mayoeru Senchitachi. Warriors who are not just bewildered, but are overwhelmed, opening their eyes to their delusions. Spiritually lost, or even cursed to wander with no place to go. And it sets the tone as well for the fact that this episode is a lot about philosophy. But before we get into the really nitty gritty stuff,、uh, let's stick with language. Have I mentioned that Hero is a master of the wordplay one liner? That sentence he has this episode, it hurts like hell, is so much more than that in Japanese. I, I can't even. Like, what he actually says is, Shinu hodo i taizo. So, Troa has just laid out the situation for him. If you've forgotten what's happened,、uh, Hiro had blown himself up with his Gundam. Turned out, surprise, he's alive after all. And he's just woken up with Troa in the circus camp. Badly injured but alive. And it's been a whole month that he's been unconscious for, and Hero is basically dead as far as Oz is concerned. There have been no further threats to the colonies, but also no contact or mission from the doctors, and Tro admits that he doesn't know what to do now. If he fights, Oz could threaten the colonies, and then cynically Tro adds that maybe I should just follow your example, i.e., blow myself up. But Hero says to this、uh, what's translated in the English as, well, I'll give you one warning. It hurts like hell. Shinu hodo i taizo. Ah, it's so good, guys. Let me, let me break it down for you.、Uh, Shinu hodo is that hyperbolic sense of to die or like dying. Shinu hodo waratta is、uh, I died laughing. And、uh, Shinu hodo aisuru is like I love you to death. Shino hodo fwa fwa te kawaii is like, it's so cute and fluffy, I could die.、Um, it's a.、Uh, that's a great sentence to have learnt for this podcast in, in Japanese. So, anyway, not only is this little punk saying it hurts like hell, he's making a total tapping pun on the fact that he nearly literally died and that Oz think that he is literally dead. It's so slick.、Um, oh, I wish I was that slick.、Um, but no wonder it tickles Tora's sense of humour. Uh, and that's important as well. They develop this quick rapport, and Hiro asks a favour, literally the first he's asked since he came to Earth, and Troa readily agrees. So, this is a really neat little scene. It's fast paced, it condenses the characters and the relevant info efficiently, and it's also fun to watch. It's stuff like this that makes me wish they'd had that little bit more time and money to polish the show. Maybe they'd have overdone it, you know, like I'm looking at you, frozen teardrop. But I do think there are some moments of real brilliance in amongst the, the silliness. And these are why the show has endured, you know, there are moments of stellar writing in there. Although, having said that, here's the thing you all know by now that I like to talk about the, the iffy translations. Well, here's one which is totally accurate it is, quote unquote, such a strong flap. Yeah, do you feel like they could maybe have been just that little bit less accurate, you know? 
wing beat that's a nice word strong flap hmm it has that real emotive quality doesn't it uh anyway meanwhile uh sally is being a badass have i raved enough about sally yet mm -mm, definitely not also take a moment to love her giant 80s mobile phone in this scene and it's like so huge she needs to hold it in both hands um so the episode kind of opens with sally's rebels who are attacking a base run by bunt the man with the name of a cake and the looks of a love child spawned by hulk hogan and tom Selleck. you know jaws for days uh, moustache sadly lacking but check out the mullet uh, also likes a drop, uh, evidenced by the bottle of whatever he has chugged and left by his bedside table. Mm, mood. Uh, the narrator drops in conveniently to give us some deets on this situation. This is Kyu Chugoku, which is former, or ex-China, up in the mountains somewhere. The area is autonomous, apparently, much like the Maganax home country, and has had an L1-style setback where someone has shot their peace lobbyist politician. But unlike OG Hiroyui, it was very self-evidently the alliance behind the assassination, and Bunt in particular. Bunt Taisha. Colonel Bunt. Uh, this and the previous episode are opening up the wings on this stage a little. So the power struggle following the fall of the alliance is opening up conflict between factions. Not just Alliance versus Oz, but also everyone versus nations who'd rather rule themselves thank you very much it meddled into all of this you have these dregs of the alliance army who are kind of doing it for themselves random rebel old timer number one says something interesting to sally as they drive away from this he says which in the english subtitles reads as it's your first time home in a long time and I guess this is like the crux of the Sally is Chinese headcanon. Now, I'm going to assume that the kanji used for kaeru in this sentence, so hisashiburi kokoe kaete kita, kaete kaeru, is the one that is with the embedded meaning to go home, rather than one that simply means to return. Confusingly, kaeru can be two different kanji. And to be honest, the first one, the to go home one, is much more likely as it's more commonly used for going to places than the second one is. So while it implies that this is Sally's home, it's not undeniable evidence that this is Sally's home country, her place of birth, or that she's Chinese in the way that we understand that. She's certainly spent considerable time in this place in the past, but I do feel if you wanted to make the argument against the Sally as Chinese headcanon, you easily could. The weight behind this sentence is perhaps disproportionate. But then again, it's hard to tell. So, is Sally Chinese? Shrug, maybe. I also note, however, that Random Rebel number one calls Sally just that. Sally. Uh, she's dropped her titles now, and she's reverted to this, like, simpler state. And then half of Sally's crew are slaughtered when Bunt airdrops in three Leos. She faces off against them with a rocket launcher, uh, and it's not just out of bravado. Sally has a strategy that might actually give them a chance. Like Odysseus, she plans to blind the Cyclops, uh, but then Wu Fei randomly appears, so no need. Not that Wu Fei has a plan. Uh, he stands there and fails on an intimidation roll and then gets narky when they're not scared enough of him, so kills them. And 
then he greets Sally and her lot by calling them Yowaimono, weaklings. What a charmer. It's very much this kind of thing that puts people off of Wufei's character and makes him difficult to understand as a protagonist. But this is Wufei's episode, and as such, let's go into that in a bit more detail, because I think Wufei is a character who requires translating more than the others. And as ever, it's wide open to interpretation, but we're here. I'm here. So I'll give it a go. Starting with Chang Wufei, what is he? Your mileage may vary, but Wufei to me seems to be a character who has two contrasting sides to him. The first of which I'm calling, for the sake of having a name for it, the Noble Warrior versus the Confucian Son. Just to begin with, Sally and Wufei's conversation when they meet give us some potted philosophy, which without much editing runs, why fight someone you can't beat? We have to. Someone ordered you to? No. Sounds fake, but whatever. I suppose in this scene, the takeaway is that Wufei has been following orders, and that he hasn't had any orders in a month. Maybe despite the massive ego, he is reliant on knowing the hierarchy, an attitude of, I do this because this is my role. I'm the best at it, I'm the strongest warrior, except I lost, and the chain of command has vanished. Which I appreciate is contrary to my saying he was the only one who questioned the information he got earlier, but if it's the case that he's out on a limb due to lack of contact, then maybe Master O really was doing something very shady. That aside, and stretching things a little, you could say that Wufei here is in a state of ronin, like a masterless samurai. Hiro lost his master and immediately did the honourable thing and embraced death as per the Bushi Code. No such thing as surrender. Wufei, in contrast, has not only lost in battle, he's lost face. He failed to defeat his enemy. His enemy refused to kill him and closed the conflict in the way that Wufei anticipated, which is a humiliation. Treys did not treat him as an equal adversary. What he did was tantamount to saying, I don't acknowledge you as a warrior, and as such, I won't give you the warrior's death. The same as Wufei did to Noin you know, karma. But Wufei came onto the battlefield with honour to be that equal adversary. He stepped out of his Gundam to fight by sword, and there was nothing except for Wufei's sense of fairness that forced him to do that. What's more, Wufei hasn't had Hiro's opportunity to, to take that final Bushi code step. Hiro was engaged in a duel with Zex at the time, don't forget, and until now Wufei's had no new opportunities or orders to redeem himself. Now, I'm using Ronin and Bushido to describe this state of mind, and I bet some of you bright cookies out there already have a hand up saying, but he's Chinese. Yes. And and this is where Wufei as a character gets really weird. Wufei is the only character heavily coded by a recognisable and unambiguous ethnicity. He's Chinese in a very different way that Hiro is quote unquote Japanese. Wufei's look, his fighting style, his Tao... The, that's his sword. The fact that even in the text of the show he speaks Mandarin, 
These are all ways in which Wu Fei actively signals his Chineseness. The others do not do this. Hero doesn't have a katana, his outfit is generic, he's not shown to be participating in any uniquely and demonstratively Japanese cultural activity. Same with Katra, who is associated with Arabic culture, but he does very little by way of active demonstration of that supposed heritage. However, Wu Fei is a version of like the Chinese warrior Jet Li archetype. And whilst this is what they appear to be aiming for, like the noble martial artist, it is kind of comes through a Japanese lens of, of what that archetype is. You see, China just hasn't had a warrior caste to the same extent or type that Japan has. Martial arts? Yes. Sinzi's art of war? Yeah. Soldiers? Yeah. And yeah, they've had wars as much as the next country, but not a sustained warrior nobility like the samurai or like the European knighthood. Two reasons for that. Mainly because those kinds of systems rely on feudalism, and China evolved out of that system and into a civil bureaucracy incredibly early on. Like, 5th century early on. Ironically, the other reason why they don't have a, or haven't had a sustained warrior noble class is that they had too many wars, uh, and it wiped out what might have developed into that, with the demand for just basically more standing armies. And even to begin with, the Shi warriors, who, who might have become that, were archers and charioteers. So even that comparison doesn't really apply well to Wu Fei. He doesn't fit into that. What's more is, coming off from that, that bureaucratic system then developed into the main philosophies of Confucianism and Taoism, which are, at their core, very anti-war, quite anti-soldier. Uh, Sun Tzu, not as keen on conflict as you'd suspect from the title of his work. And yes, again, other belief systems make some noise about war being bad, but they're also generally pretty happy to wage war when it suits them. Instead, the main swathe of Chinese culture, and yeah, okay, there are exceptions, has idealised non-martial roles, so bureaucratic and scholarly pursuits. Soldier was not something you wanted your kids to become, and even if we consider families or like Shaolin monks who practice martial arts, the underlying principle is not about bloodshed or conquest, it's about the perfection of body and mind. So, with that in mind, what the hell is Wu Fei? Um, episode Zero tells us he's the heir to a quote-unquote warrior clan, exiled for their dangerous politics. If so, then he is of that noble cast of warriors in space, and as such he is a huge anachronism. Uh, his mindset just doesn't fit into modern warfare, which is about profit and loss far, far more than it is about honour or glory or right and wrong. Think of the Charge of the Light Brigade. It was chivalry on horseback versus Gatling guns. It didn't work. And at the same time as being this noble warrior, we know from episode zero that Wu Fei started off as very much more this Confucian son archetype. Adept at martial arts, yes, but undesiring of conflict and much more strongly orientated towards scholarly pursuits. He was cynical and passive and unwilling to act because he felt that his actions would be unnecessary and futile. Whereas Melan waded in because she had to, 
because she felt she did. And I think in another way, Wufei and Zex between them represent this like non-existent golden age of the warrior where warfare was chivalrous. They are, you know, the samurai warrior monk reinvented for the space opera and the knight serving his liege lord. The rest of the cast represent the various facets of modern war, um, so like guerrilla warfare and espionage and freedom fighters and the bloated warlords and their dogs of war. Uh, though, of course, the process of the narrative kind of subverts and questions all of these roles. But my point being is that I think this is why his character is so hard to get to grips with. He's almost like two half-built characters pushed into one. And there's just not enough screen time to pick apart these nuances, uh, especially for a non-Japanese audience who, who typically lack even the first glimpse of where Wufei could be coming from and who are relying on translation. There's a lot lost. But within this episode, I think Wufei's biggest hurdle, both in the text as his issue in this episode and in terms of understanding his point of view, is that he operates with this almost purely black and white sense of morality based on the ethics of justice. And I'm going to deviate off for a hot moment to talk about that. So when it comes to Wufei and his morals, which are something that strongly drives his character, we are again looking at dyads, so two opposing contrasting points of view. Uh, And we've got three of them here. So the first of those is emotions versus moral choices. The second is Eastern versus Western perceptions of morality and justice. And the third is the individual sense of right and wrong versus what is authority defined as just or lawful. The first of these is the simplest. However much we try to be impartial or logical, our morals and ethics are generally from an emotional basis. They are inculcated by socialisation and our experience with authority and are often circumstantial. So, for example, the phrase, it is wrong to kill, might be concluded with the words ever, except in self-defence, if you're not going to eat them, or without the proper licence, depending on the situation. This emotional connection to moral judgement is so ingrained that people who don't have it aren't always the best at making ethical choices. So psychologist James Blair has shown that psychopaths treat moral rules as mere conventions. Uh, And this kind of suggests that emotions are necessary for making moral judgments, like those decisions we make on the basis that it just feels wrong. Having said that, our sense of morality is based on specific emotions. So we feel anger and disgust when an immoral action is performed by another person and generally guilt and shame when an action is performed by ourselves. And you can't really have one without the other. So for example, you might find the idea of eating a big juicy liver completely disgusting. But unless you're a moral vegetarian, you wouldn't be ashamed of eating it. And witnessing someone else eating it isn't likely to make you angry. On the spectrum of main characters, Wufei is surprisingly emotional, and like, despite how hard he works to control himself, ironically he seems to have some of the worst emotional control. Hero follows gut instinct against his rational line of thought, which then makes him question his behaviour, 
And the others have their moments too, but I'd argue that Wufei, as a default state, struggles the most with a kind of surfeit of strong emotion that he just doesn't know how to deal with. And as such, it's really hard to say if Wufei trusts his own feelings or not. Um, so that it just feels wrong emotion it is probably something that he doesn't necessarily go with. He, he wants to question that. And it's like this discordance between what he feels and what he thinks the right action to take it seems to be what's fueling his poor behaviour. Contrastingly, Mehran knew her feelings. She wasn't afraid to follow her instincts. Even though the outcome was devastating and her motivations may have been somewhat self-serving, she identified what she felt she had to do, and she did it, without compromise. Wufei's problem is that he thinks too much. The second part of understanding Wufei comes from the contrast between Western and Eastern views of what is just and what is a right action. Like I said, our sense of right and wrong is inculcated from the time we're children, and it, it develops in line with our circumstances. And of course, there's like massive variety within social groups as well. Uh, and this is a deep topic that some people have spent a lifetime studying. But I do think it's worth knowing some of the headlines of that work. So, first of all, cross-cultural research has shown that Westerners define immoral actions to mean primarily harmful actions. It's immoral to hit your brother because you hurt him when you do that. Asian cultures are much more likely to associate immoral actions as primarily uncivilised actions. It's immoral to hit your brother because that's monkey behaviour and you'll embarrass your mother. The second contrast is that what's called Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic, aka weird cultures, which is such a great acronym, um, weird cultures are generally more likely to emphasise individual rights and independence, whereas non-weird cultures tend to more strongly moralise duty-based communal obligations and spiritual purity. Wufei's white outfit, on that note, may be an indication of his mourning for Meiran, but it could equally be a symbol of how he strives for purity, or that he, he wants to be a pure spirit. Do you know that old ethics question about the trolley car? So if you pull the lever and change the rail track, you'll squish one person on the track, but save four others? Well, well, most people across cultures will generally agree that pulling the lever is the right choice. People from collectivist cultures are more likely to want contextual information. Particularly, is it my place or duty to act? Uh, and they also consider individuals who do not flip the lever less harshly. For people in autonomy-emphasising cultures, i.e. America, the West, justice and fairness are often perceived as a matter of equity in which outcomes are proportional to your personal effort. So, like, the harder you try, the better the perceived outcome is, regardless of the potential detriment to others. By comparison, people in duty-based communal cultures, i.e. a lot of Asian countries, often view justice and fairness as an issue of equality, in which everyone deserves an equal outcome, and moral judgments are based on whether or not something that benefits you will cause others to suffer. So it might be a good thing for you, but if it doesn't help anybody else or it puts you above somebody else, then it's, it's not as good as you think. So 
The long and short of it is, when Wu Fei is banging on about justice and understanding justice, he's not necessarily coming at it in the sense of, like, the long arm of the law. And in the context of the colonies, it makes a lot more sense. They are treated as inferior, and the decisions made by the Alliance are self-beneficial to a small number of people, well, not so good for the cohesive or civilised whole. Maidan's death and the mission imposed by Teacher O are the framework of his drive for justice, and they're defining his communal obligation to act. So it's not that he has this obsession with law and order, it's that he is put in a position where it's been told that his his duty to do this. However, I think what's happened is Wufei has found himself at the trolley lever, and he's suddenly asking, hold on, is it my place to act? It's not unreasonable to assume that so far he's been driven by some personal motivations, primarily revenge, but those motivations are not something he can either admit to, and they're not something that can actually carry him very far. So his failure and his isolation and the fact that he's burnt out some of his need to hurt the Alliance, and even perhaps the fact that the war has gotten bigger and more complicated, well, this has left him groping for a way forward and having to redefine where he came into this battle from. Uh, And this is where personal perspective conflicts with authority-defined justice. What I mean by that is a situation where your personal sense of what is right doesn't accord with the law or with a previously inculcated perception of of morality or even with like your professional ethics. On a basic level, Wufei does not believe in the justice and ethics of war as defined by the Alliance, so he doesn't believe them when he says they're fighting for justice and peace. Um, It's just too self-evidently flawed. But he also is no longer really buying into the mission statement from Teacher O either. Um, His actions are driven by an obligation to someone else's perception of justice, whilst his own beliefs are ill-defined or or unspoken as either a feeling he doesn't understand yet or or something he feels he shouldn't admit to. And then when the authority framework doesn't work out for him either, he can't fulfil it, uh, he's left questioning what he personally is fighting for. And in short, I don't think Wufei has allowed himself to ask these questions or to find his own place within the mission. His refusal to fight is him finding himself locked in the trolley car, but no one has told him if he has the right to make the choice to pull the lever or not. And he's still half hoping for someone to tell him the answer. Um, Until Sally gives him an alternative. Whatever Wufei is, when Sally meets him, she recognises that he's not in a good place, and there's more to be gained by offering an open hand than by turning a cold shoulder or arguing with him. It's also worth noting that this is the first time a stranger has seen a Gundam pilot and not been shocked by how young he is. Of course, Sally has seen Hero, and I think that's important. She comes to this front-loaded with the knowledge not to make assumptions, and that pays off in this interaction. Mr. Contradictory that he is, Wu Fei accepts their hospitality and in return offers to help out the grocery shopping. Uh, He takes no credit for his earlier help against the Leos and instead states that it was Nataku. But when Sally asks if that's the name of his Gundam, he says nothing. It is incredibly frustrating that this exchange is never explained in the show. 
Like, this character forces you to read between the lines to an almost impossible extent, and he's the character who would most have benefited from his backstory being included in the main body of the show. We could probably get away without, you know, Troa's background, for example, and even maybe um, heroes, but like I said, you know, screen time. When they get into town, they come across some of Billy Bunt's boys playing Legend of Zelda and smashing pots in a local shop. Sally wades in, and she wades in like a linebacker. I absolutely love that she just ups and slugs them, and it's not at all delicate. Um, She doesn't fight like a girl. She is a brawler. And I even kind of like that she gets punched back in the face, um, but it's sort of rolled with in the context of the show. Not that I'm down with violence against women, but it's played out as a bar brawl, and she's treated as equally as any other participant with the same agency and consequences. I mean, do you know what I mean? You see so many other anime women fight, and they fight girly style. You know what I mean? It's all like... And then when they, they do get knocked out of the fight, it's just terribly feminine. But... um. It's only that it's three against one and she gets whacked with a stool to the back of the head. That that gets her into trouble. Uh, and even when Wufei jumps in, he has to escalate things to end it. Uh, so he has to steal a gun. And even then, it's only because the locals are menacing in the background that he wins. So yeah, I really like, I kind of love this fight scene for what it is. Wufei doesn't take any credit for this either. Uh, he calls himself weak again, but then he calls himself a coward, using the word hikyomono. There are various ways to say coward in Japanese, and this word, hikyomono, is not necessarily the first on the list, so there's a, there's a little bit unpacking to be had here. Hikyo by itself means cowardice, but also meanness or unfairness. It's used in phrases like unsportsmanlike, which puts a little nuance of unworthy on the word beyond that straightforward translation as coward. The constituent kanji of this word also gives us iashi, which means low-born, base, cheap or vulgar, and the other kanji gives us obieru, which means to be frightened of or to be intimidated by. At any rate, more than a criticism of his bravery, as it sounds in the English, I think Wufei's comment here is about his standing as a warrior, and his feeling that he doesn't have any. He states that he lost to a man stronger than him, and now he can only fight those who are weaker. I guess from his perspective, he's sort of fallen through the hole in the middle. He's not good enough to fight the war that needs fighting against Oz, but it doesn't seem morally right for him to then take Nataku against the minions when the odds are stacked so much in his favour. In short, he thinks he can't complete the mission at this point, and by logical extension of this should give the Gundam over to someone who could. Again, reading between the lines, Wufei has the least sense of ownership and maybe the worst relationship with his Gundam. This does differ to the others. Hero is protective of his Gundam, but that's because it's a powerful tool, and Troa, likewise, he only has what seems to be a loose emotional tie to heavy arms. Both are willing to lend their machines out as required to the right person. Duo and Kacho, in contrast, forge emotional bonds to their machines and are comforted by them. But it's only Wufei for whom the Gundam causes visible cognitive distress. In fact, I'd argue that piloting Nataku under the terms and conditions that Wufei has been set is actively destroying him, and he's been set up to fail on that basis. 
Sally tries to remind him of the point of the war, to fight for peace and for the colonies, but we're faced or too caught up with this idea of how to do war right. Uh, and he isn't ready to hear it, and off he goes for his biggest and best emote and float. On the face of it, it's very dramatic and very silly, and it's one of those memeable moments we like to make fun of. But given everything we've discussed so far, I now wonder if the boat isn't a reference to something within that, like, noble warrior archetype, like a nod to some samurai or kung fu story. At the minimum, it's a heavy-handed metaphor. Wufei is, quite literally, cast adrift without a paddle. And with that, cue the big giant Relina head. We head into the second part of the episode with Bunt plotting his move. He suggests asking Oz for help, and here it turns out I've had Bunt all wrong because it seems like he is the head of this autonomous nation, and not actually Alliance. Or he was Alliance, but he isn't anymore. Oh god, this is complicated. Um, maybe they only recently declared independence? Or, I don't know. Anybody out there know? Can someone explain this to me? Because I don't get it. You're like, why is Sally's not fighting them? Why is Bunt pitted against Sally's lot rather than Oz? I don't know. Also, why did it take me until now to realise that Sally is driving the flatbed version of the three-wheeled van from Only Fools and Horses? I love this girl. I love everything that she has. I love her lipstick. I love her hair. I love her massive giant mobile phone and her three-wheeler flatbed truck. Just life goals, you know? Anyway, um... Sally returned to the rebel base, and we get to admire the absolutely stellar job they've done of hiding the Shenlong Gundam inside a giant fishneck stocking and some token shrubbery. It is bright red, guys. Uh, that is not going to cut it. Sally has a little chat with random rebel number one, who is quite keen to get an unaccompanied minor in on the frontline combat, which Sally gently puts down by saying, no one should force him to fight. She is the first to acknowledge that any of the pilots have been under huge pressure to deliver something almost impossible, uh, Gundam or no, and that recent events have, you know, messed with their heads. I really like Sally, have I mentioned this? She's, she's no nonsense, but she's also probably like the most reasonable person in this whole show so far. Here's another headcanon that comes up. Uh, so, random old-timer rebel number one refers to her in the English subtitles as a military doctor. That's why she's going easy on Wufei. But I can't pick out the word that relates to that in Japanese. Um, I listened and I listened and I couldn't hear anything that related to it. Uh, he says, Rengo no Buin, which means part of the alliance. And so, I can't confirm that she was a doctor, I'm afraid. I, I really need to see these scripts, I think. But then... The government attacked. Maybe actually what is happening here is this is a reflection on the state of the world pre-alliance, so all of these heavily armed nations butting heads for the sake of independence, and then the alliance was supposed to put a stop to it. It's a situation and a quote-unquote peace that nobody except like the buntcakes of this world want to go back to. Uh, I guess if I think about it like that, then Sally's cause makes more sense. But then... Oz attacks, uh, because Bunt has sold his own army out to Oz. Uh, so I guess Bunt is just another kind of Bonaparte, like he's profiteering off of war to his own personal gain. And then in the middle of this, Wufei gets a, another dying wish laid on him to fight Oz using the Gundam. Sally offers him a free chance to cut his losses in bail, which annoys random rebel number two. And hilariously, random rebel number two turns on Wufei and addresses him as Bozu, 
which is an almost hero caliber word choice. Um, Bozu is a Buddhist monk, but equally it's a slangy way to address a younger male, like, oi, Sunny Jim. And it's totally appropriate given that Wufei is both a brat and a traditionalist who is not fighting. Anyway, unfortunately then Wufei gets a third dying wish laid on him because we can't lay it on any thicker. Sally tells him that he has everything he needs in terms of strength and she calls him kind-hearted. She then straight up dodges two direct shots from a mobile suit. She just like cha-cha slides right out of danger. And, and here we get to another bit that I know some viewers don't like. Some people really dislike that Sally says, I've realised my life is less important than healing your heart, and is apparently willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of inspiring the less than popular male protagonist. I can see why um, that doesn't sit well. Uh, hmm. Again, though, I think it's not all it appears. So I think Sally does hold all of the control in this situation. And I think it was actually quite a savvy move made on her part. Um, I'm going to pick something up from a Tumblr thread in which I discussed this before. Uh, I will put a link to, to that in the description of the show. And firstly, from that thread, a comment made by Alex Sins plus one. <laughs> When Wufei asks why she is doing something so stupid, she then responds with the phrase, Now, the word to pick up on that is naosu. And handanshita. Because this aspect is incomplete in the anime translation posted above. Naosu has the connotation of not just healing, but curing or repairing. Sally wants to repair Wufei's flawed attitude of dismissing the needs of the weak. Handanshita means judged or deduced, and connotes that someone has very logically assessed the situation. Sally, ever the compassionate yet intelligent soldier, is telling Wufei that her actions are totally rational. Put this together and we get something more like, because I've concluded that fixing your attitude is more important, that's my belief. This is totally in line with the manner in which Toma Yumi, the original voice actress, performs this scene, steely and with a little bit of urgency. My further interpretation is that she has also weighed how slim her chances are if Wufei doesn't snap out of it. I don't want to detract from the fact that she is being incredibly brave and she is talking about losing her life, but it's in a wake up Wufei, people are dying kind of way, and not a I hope to heal your heart, dear, as I throw myself like a sacrificial lamb at this mecca. Following this, Elbro009 subsequently raises a hugely interesting point that Wufei doesn't use an attacker unless pushed to. So that's in line with what I was saying before about how he has the worst relationship to his Gundam. And I also stand by my response at the time. Uh, it repeats a little of what I've said here, so I'll, I'll paraphrase. Wufei giving the credit to Nataku rather than himself is a clue that Wufei was still fighting at this point out of a sense of obligation to Meilan and her ideals. He's taken this duty on, but it's not based of his own intrinsic need to act on the matter. Instead, he's being pushed around by higher external influence that he's partially co-opted into his own understanding of himself, his motives and who he's doing this for. 
And I don't think Sally's action gets him all the way past this by any means. I don't think Wufei gets there until almost right at the end, when the Zero System shows him in the black and white terms he understands what he should be doing, and he finally agrees. As an aside, it's interesting he's the one who has the fewest problems with Zero. Wufei is very much a person of extremes on many levels. Things are right or they are wrong as far as he is concerned, and all he wants in life is a foolproof litmus paper to tell the difference by. As the series progresses, we see him move away from the conviction that he is this litmus paper to a more mature understanding. But on the way, he acts naively and messes up a lot. He's sort of childish that way. Tying in with that, I suppose, is the fact of him not using Otaku as Sector's last resort. My take on that is that Wufei genuinely wants out. A part of him doesn't want this. He regrets coming to Earth. He doesn't want to be under the enormous pressure the role he's being asked to play. I think as much as he said it and said it that he is the warrior to carry forth the mantle, it's still not really him at this point. Part of him is still just the kid who wants an education in a garden. But to admit that? Unthinkable. Absolutely not an option. This is his fate now. But that shy kid is still part of him anyway and is overwhelmed. So maybe Sally steps in thinking about what he's doing more constructively when facing down the Ares. In short, she challenges him to find his own identity in all of this muddy reasoning. What that identity is, is perhaps irrelevant, but he must step it up and reconcile his purpose or everything is really going to go to hell. And I also stand by what I wrote in another post coming back to the idea of what it is to be a warrior. Wufei's whole attitude at that point where Sally's offering to sacrifice herself is if you're not strong enough to win then why bother fighting at all with one action sally delivers an on-point rebuttal that he's forgetting about what being a warrior really is it's about having the internal strength and the honor to step up regardless of your chances this comes from bushido she reminds him outright that he has the same internal strength and that's what makes him a warrior not his skills or his weapons she's right He's naive, and if he's going to overcome his losses, he needs to get his head in the game on his terms, and he needs to step up to her level, or he needs to accept that he's not ready and pass the baton. There's too much on the line for him to be bringing his ego to war. However, I think Sally also recognises that there's no one to pass it on to. But if there were, if Wufei passes the baton, then he'll never recover from that. He would fade away as a victim of the war, and I don't think he would last very long. At that point in time, Sally had a choice to make. She could stand up, or she'd run. She couldn't wait for Wufei to act, or rely on his choice, so she stood up, unarmed, and weaponized herself. I don't see that as her needlessly sacrificing herself as an inspiration for a male protagonist, or just doing it to buy him time because she knew for sure that he would act. I think it was much more calculated and a lot more honest. She was going to go down front and centre and fight her way. Never mind the outcome. She'd die or live. He'd act or he wouldn't. But if he acted, she'd also have effectively recruited her most powerful ally. As we know, the outcome is that Wufei does decide to act, and he attacks. There's not much to add about the combat other than it's a great and visceral fight scene, and it's great how in the end it fades out to this aftermath uh, dawn and Wufei's still there. Uh, it's the first time we see a pilot stick around after a battle. 
Rufay's part in the episode rounds off with a conversation with Sally about justice, in which she tells him that she's working for her own sense of justice, and that he can define what justice is for himself too. She also brings into it an argument of strength, might, or right. Her argument is that right is better than strong, man or machine. He has the strength of the Gundam, but it's the strength of his desire to do the right thing that will steer that power. And I think that's Sally's conclusion. Whatever Sally means, it's evidently the validation that Wufei needs, because whatever he is, and whatever his conflicts, and however obnoxious he is, Wufei at his core desperately wants to be a good person and to do the right thing. He's a kid who often gets it wrong, and he makes a rod for his own back, but he tries. Wufei's narrative isn't an easy one to follow, and it's not an attractive one either. Uh, It's neither sympathetic nor romantic, and it often puts him on the wrong side of the story, but somehow it strikes me as relatable. Like, how many of us have messed up or struggled because we thought we had the answer, or we couldn't admit to ourselves that we weren't happy about something? Wufei reminds me of those kids who just play and excelled at everything and, like, never had to try. They just perform at a level beyond their age grade, but then they get to university and suddenly they no longer stand out as the top of the class and things are hard. But unlike kids used to trying and trying again, they don't have any emotional resilience to failure or any coping skills to find a way around it. The episode, as I said, ends with a smile uh, and then a little tease. We visit Tro at the circus and learn that Oz is coming to town, but we'll discuss that in the next episode. So that's it, episode 12. Um, Thanks for listening. Thanks for waiting so long for this. Um, I hope you enjoyed that and it gave you some food for thought. I will post some links to some of the things I've been reading whilst I've been thinking about this episode. Um, And if you have comments, questions, or just want to run by me your take on the episode, you can find me at lemontrash.tumblr.com or you can drop me a pineapple on the Radio Meteor website. Um, And that's it. I'm Odamaki. Icky Lemon Trash, and I'll see you in orbit, hopefully a little bit faster, next time. Bye!